welcome to I Spit On Your Podcast, a monthly horror podcast brought to you by the Spinsters of Horror. This is a time once a month where Jess puts down her bloody knitting needles and Kelly steps away from the TV to discuss horror movies and sometimes other horror mediums with thoughtful analysis, research, and passion. And before we begin this month's episode on witches, we want to promote this wonderful new book in the works called Scared Sacred. House of Leaves Publishing presents a collection of writings exploring the cultural history of religion and horror cinema. Scared Sacred, Idolatry, Religion, and Worship in the Horror Film. Bringing together leading film critics, historians, and writers, Scared Sacred includes an introduction by author and theologian Professor Douglas E. Cowan and a foreword from actor and author Doug Bradley. Scared Sacred is due to release in 2019, and the purpose of the current crowdfunding campaign is to allow supporters to pre-order a first edition copy of the book. The first edition run is limited to 500 copies, with only 100 copies of the hardback, hardback edition, including an alternative cover foiled in copper, as the paperback edition cover art is foiled in silver. Each book will be accompanied by a numbered certificate. Please visit www.holpublishing.com for the link to pre-order and further information. The Cinematic Church of Horror is a cathartic and challenging sanctum for its congregation. In this timeless chamber, the wind of cultural history whispers through stone walls decorated with the iconography of symbolic and supernatural power. This is a spiritual screen chosen by an audience who willingly seek confrontation with death, supernatural forces, and the primal fear of the unknown. Due for release in early 2019, House of Leaves Publishing presents a collection of writings exploring the cultural history of religion in horror cinema. Scared Sacred, Idolatry, Religion, and Worship in the Horror Film is edited by Rebecca Booth, author of The Devil Rides Out, part of the Devil's Advocate series from Mature Publishing. Aaron Thompson, owner and editor of the Backseat Driver Reviews, and R.F. Todd, managing director of House of Leaves. The book developed in response to the recent reclaiming of the fusion between supernatural and religious themes in mainstream horror cinema and brings together leading critics, historians, and writers in the horror community to tackle this theological topography. In addition to an introduction by author and theologian Professor Douglas E. Cohen, the book also features a foreword from actor and author Doug Bradley, who brought to life perhaps the most iconic figure in religious horror cinema. Thematically, the book is divided into four sections to provide a well-rounded analysis of world religion, idolatry, and worship, covering a diverse range of subjects, from atheism to auditory hallucination, martyrdom to medieval witch, and zealotry to zealotry. The outpouring of support and interest in Scared Sacred has been heartwarming, and we hope you enjoy the book. Thank you so much for joining us on this journey. We couldn't have picked better company. We are both really, really excited to add this book to our ever-growing collections. I, spinster number two, have already backed this, uh, this book, so I'm pretty excited about it. And I will be backing it as well, so get on it. Get on it. 
So on this episode of I Spit on Your Podcast, we'll be talking about witches and horror by exploring the good and bad witch dichotomy and the elements of female empowerment and persecution. This will be discussed by showcasing the films The Autopsy of Jane Doe and Season of the Witch. So sit back, pick your poison, and listen on, if you dare. So before we get into kind of a brief history of witches... Um, I wanted to discuss why I chose these particular two films because they're quite out there in the sense of there's so many movies about witches and exploring female empowerment and exploring the witch dichotomy, but why two, you know, one a very independent uh, film that was done and one that is a rare unknown film of George Romero's. So I chose Season of the Witch because when I saw it, it was a very important film to me and I'll go into more details about it, but it really shows and I really feel that it showcases the idea of women finding independence through the path of the witch and uh, embracing witchcraft. So I see that both as a way of female empowerment and, and in a way also kind of a bit of a persecution because of the time of the time this film came out in the 1970s. The Autopsy of Jane Doe is an interesting one because if you haven't seen it already, you don't really find out anything about this corpse being a witch until like very much close to the end of the film and you're kind of like wondering like well, why would they want to choose choose this film well it has some really interesting ideas about the bad witch and we will go into more details about that in the, our discussion about the film but you almost want to you walk away from the film either thinking that Jane Doe the corpse is a bad witch or really or was she really a bad witch is that just a perception that we have of her uh, based upon what's happening in the movie. So those are the reason why I chose those two films. So to kind of go, I'll try my best to be as brief as possible with the history of witches, but there's quite a bit and there's actually quite, and still a lot more history being done. But when we think about the witch hunts, everyone thinks about first and foremost, the witch hunts in Salem, Massachusetts in 1692. But I'm gonna discuss more about how it's all started. And then we have a very long history of it, like from the seventh century, you know, it started with the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, Theodore, punishing witches by fasting, uh, forcing them to starve. Back in the, and then in the 8th century, we had the Archbishop of York, who would punish an individual by who was slaying someone by incantation, so a witch. If you killed someone by witchcraft, you would have to fast for seven years. But it was more in the 10th century, and this is all in England, where King Ath Athelson introduced, first introduced the death penalty for the murder of, by witchcraft. And then it gets, continues to grow as with Elizabeth I in 1563, who signed a new Witchcraft Act, which led to 535 bills of indict, indictment drawn and 82 people ad, executed for witchcraft. Then we have King James VI of Scotland, who was also the first of England, who personally led witch hunts himself in Scotland. And in 1604, he signed the Witchcraft Act that stayed on the status, status which, which means it stayed in law in England until 1736. And this, what ended up doing was cause the whole country to just look for witches wherever they were and causing a lot of false accusations. It caused essentially in 1607, 41 people were executed for witchcraft due to false accusations, which brought on hysteria, which brought about people, which everyone, if you're, you know, know anything about witchcraft or witches or witch hunts or watch any kind of horror film, you'll be introduced to the individual Matthew Hopkins, who is also known as the Witchfinder General. He was a gentleman who was personally responsible for 14 months for the condemnations and executions of around 200 witches by 1645. He was a very cruel and greedy man, and he specialized in extraction confessions from particularly elderly women with pets, which was a very interesting uh, fact I found out about him, because he would consider pets the witch's familiars. 
He also used a lot of this as a business. So he made he made a good profit off of uh, the the hunting and the execution and accus the accusation and execution of witches because he would bring in a lot of the secular authorities involved and he would actually charge a lot of towns for his services. Uh, at one point, he was eventually by 1645 stopped and he ended up dying early of young age. But in 1652, the witch hunts started to become more sporadic and eight years before Salem, the last woman to be executed as a witch was Alice Mallard in England in 1684. But what's really interesting, and we really see a huge uh, turn towards the hunting of witches is in northern Germany. In northern Germany, sacred women were venerated as tribal soothsayers and conduits for nature. So this is more of the early pagan uh, ideas of witchcraft and, wit and witches. And the actual term for witch was derived from the Anglo-Saxon word Wicca, meaning sorcerer or prophet. But in 747, Pope Zachary called the Second Council of Clofeshow in England and forbade the wizardry, sorcery, divination, fortune-telling, spells, and incantations, and thus banning witchcraft. Pope Innocent VIII, during the actual Inquisitions and Crusades, released a papal bull in 1484 that marked the beginning of the persecution of actual witches. Of witches. Witchcraft was then made heresy and punishable by death. So before, while there was just the banning of witchcraft and then forcing of fasting and torture, this was the first time where the Catholic Church turned around and said, no, 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 there's actual witches that we are going to, this is actually heresy against our religion and we are going to punish you by death. So then he authorized two Dominican monks, Jacob Spring Springer, he was the Dean of University of Cologne, and Heinrich Noer, a professor of theology at the University of Salzburg and also one of the inquisitors at Tyrol, to stamp out the heresy of witchcraft. Heinrich would then wrote the infamous Malus Malficarum, or a Hexen Hammer or Hammer of the Witches. This became the standard handbook in identifying witchcraft and, in, and used in its suppression. It combined folklore with dark magic and codified it in church dogma and, on heresy. It was broken into three parts. Uh, the reality and depravity of witches, so emphasizing the disbelief in the demonology. The compendium of fabulous stories of activities of witches, and thus also the legal procedures on how to, to follow on witch trials. Torture was constantly used as a means of confession, and any witness who any witness could testify against a witch, no matter what their credentials were. And secular authorities were always called in to help with the trials, with no with the with the executions and the, tri the trials and the executions. And from 1468 to 1600, the book went through 28 editions and was accepted by the Roman Catholic and Protestant Church alike as a text to help with wiping out witchcraft. However, by the 17th century, the book would be denounced and the church would distance itself from its texts and the resulting murder of thousands of women. The witch trials not only happened in England and Germany, but across Europe, in areas such as France and the lower countries. However, in the early 1600s, the hunts began to fade away and less and less women were being tried and executed for witchcraft. It would not be until 1692 in Salem, Massachusetts, on the North American continent, that the witch hunt would be revived again. Yeah, around that time is when the Enlightenment era happened which really brought in empirical reason you know skepticism and humanitarianism which definitely helped to defeat the superstitions of that you know of the medieval times medieval ages um, there was no empirical evidence that alleged witches caused actual real harm and everyone was taught that the use of torture to force confessions was inhumane so once we removed ourselves from that highly religious, superstitious era, you know, we saw uh, the end to those terrible witch hunts. 
Then we move over into Salem, Massachusetts in 1692. So the exact, we really only have theories on how things really began. We don't know for sure what happened. It was a long time ago. We do know that living, living conditions in those times were, you know, very challenging. Everybody was deeply religious. It's a harsh time. I feel like almost any time that's not this time is harsh. <laughs> um, so between 1691 to 1692, there were two girls that started acting really oddly. They were frothing at the mouth, contorting their bodies, howling, sometimes appearing deaf or blind. Doctors were not able to pinpoint an actual physical illness or a cause, so they decided it was a psychic cause, whatever that means, um, and that they were bewitched. So Reverend Samuel Paris's daughter and niece were the one, those two girls that were affected, Elizabeth Paris and Abigail Williams, which is also a metal band, by the way. Then afterwards, there were other women in the town. Everybody started kind of acting similarly. People didn't know what was going on, but somebody had to be responsible for these, you know, this psychic attack and this, uh, you know, having everybody be witch. So those two girls claimed three different women were responsible. So Sarah Good, who was a beggar, Sarah Osborne, who was a widow caught up in a lot of local disputes and drama, and Tituba the Indian, which is Paris's slave from Barbados. So they all went to create elaborate stories and start blaming each other, and months went on with people blaming each other for all sorts of different things, sometimes very absurd things. Um, some people that, you know, were blamed, they confessed, and they admitted to being a witch so they could be spared, you know, any kind of, you know, torture or anything like that just to spare their lives. Um, beyond those uh, three younger women, most women were uh, over 40 years of age. These people were forced into confessions by tort strip searches for the devil's mark or extra teats for suckling familiars. And you know, throughout this podcast, we're definitely going to be hitting a lot of the same main points. Women were seen as the weaker sex. We were easily corrupted and we had a strong link with the devil. There is a misconception about Salem, Massachusetts and this uh, witch hunt era for them that nobody was actually burned at the stake. That was not something that happened there. Those who died were hanged, majority of them. So by 1693, approximately 200 people were accused of witchcraft, little over 50 actually confessed, 19 were executed, and there were a handful that died in jail waiting, you know, sentencing. By 1706, there were many of those involved with such trials were regretful of killing a whole bunch of innocent people. And overall, female sexuality played a much smaller role in Salem than the European witch hunts. Maybe that was because everybody were Puritans and it just wasn't a huge thing for them. <laughs> so we'll move on to our first movie and it's called Season of the Witch, George Romero's movie. <laughs> qualified person to understand a dream is the dreamer, which brings us to you. Oh, God. Jeez, Tony, you scared the hell out of me.
knives. They're all witches' tools, you know. Well, I'm just interested in it. Oh, Jesus, 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 So I actually never heard of this movie until I listened to Jess's previous podcast and horror project called The Dark Spectrum. They had an episode on Season of the Witch and the Crap. No, it wasn't that episode. It was Season of the, the Witch and the Crazies, right? Yeah, yeah. It was all about George. It was the George Romero tribute episode. Great. Okay. So, so <clears throat> as far as I remember, I didn't even know anything about this movie. So I was really surprised to, to hear about it. And I was definitely really intrigued by it because I had never heard of it before. So thanks, Jess and the Dark Spectrum. And so, yeah, it's a very similar story to Kelly as I first heard of this movie when my podcast host at the time uh was a big uh, really big into a cl- uh, old horror films and stuff like that he had a huge collection we decided to do a george romero tribute so we did two episodes and we did season of the witch was one and when i watched it loved it and i still love it because uh, it really impacted my own move into uh into witchcraft so but what i like about this film I like the imagery. There's a lot of subtle, subtle imagery and a lot of um, that when you're really watching, you can pick up on. And I've watched this movie like three times now and I pick up on something different every time. I really like the music um, and I really do like the character of Joan. I really enjoy her characterization. Um, so what are your likes, Kelly? So this was definitely, it was a first time watch for me overall. I did enjoy it, didn't love it, I did like it. Uh, I love the costume design. I thought Joan as a character was fantastic, probably the best actor in the entire movie, because overall the acting I think is quite terrible. Um, but she was wonderful, like these, like the epic like outfits and the hair, and I thought that was really well done. I love the cinematography of it. Um, that movie, sorry, the movie, the best scene, I think, is when Joan starts, she's like, yep, I'm doing this now. I'm becoming a witch. She starts gathering all her little witchy items and oh, everything. Oh, yeah, And yeah. Season of the Witch, by, the- I think it's Donovan, um, is yep, playing. Donovan. Ugh, that's, a fa- yeah. that's my favorite part of that whole movie. It was just a, a really wonderful kind of cheering moment for, for Joan, I feel. Um, it feels very liberating. Like you feel like that. You're just like, yeah, you go, girl. <laughs> you, you get that. You get that witchy stuff. Right? Yeah. 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 And uh, <laughs> yeah. So those are my definitely my initial likes about the movie. For me, my dislikes. Um, the pacing at times was a little slow, um, and so you can find that you may lose your interest a bit if you're not really engaged with the film. I also found. <laughs> This is why not typical. I found some of the men very, uh, uh, not fascinating, infuriating, infuriating. And I think maybe that was just an emphasis of the time period where like you have like a very, you know, neglectful and kind of an abusive husband. And then you, you know, and then Joan hooks up with Greg, spoilers, everyone. And uh, he's, you know, he's so challenging and stuff like that. And he, 
and you want to think like yeah she slept with a younger man so she was with liberty but he's like also very mentally abusive towards her and i found that very frustrating because he was just uh yeah so i didn't really care much for the men in this film and they're all the men like even the police officers everyone they're all jerks <laughs> yeah the men were quite disgusting and trash in the movie for sure for sure i mean i was pumped when joan actually ended up sleeping with greg like i was ready for this and I thought you know if she doesn't have sex in this movie I'm shutting it off and I don't want it <laughs> because it was very obviously needed and uh, yeah Greg everybody's pretty disgusting in this movie uh, I would definitely agree on the pacing of it it's not action-packed it's not it's slow and I feel like some Romero movies are kind of like that anyways I found that in the, his uh, the crazies and, and it's not super thrilling to watch and I mentioned the terrible acting, though I thought Joan was fantastic. So, I mean, having terrible acting surrounding, you know, your protagonist, who is wonderful actress, then, you know, that that in the end was, it was fine for me. I, um, I did, yeah, I enjoyed it, and I'm glad that you chose it for the podcast. Yay! So before we kind of go into more details of our reflections with the film, we want to kind of set up a little bit of context as to why we chose this. So. This film came out in the 1970s, is that actually in 1973. So, and what's happening at the time in the 70s? Well, we have the women's liberation movement. And so why is this important to witches? Well, we shall, we shall tell you. So first we're gonna look at the 1960s. So because elements that happened in the 1960s bleed into the 1970s. And in the 1960s, we see uh, witch. Women's inter International Terrorist Conspiracy from Hell, born in New on Halloween night in New York in 1968. And this is where we start seeing some feminist protesters come out. So on that day, women dressed as witches descended upon Wall Street to um, administer a hex. Um, and on the and a couple days later, the stock market fell 13 points. Over the months, witch branches popped up all over the U.S. and as far as Japan, and their goal was to target universities, beauty pageants, playboy clubs, anything that represented patriarchy, and protest the overabundance and the overabuses of the patriarchy, and really active and really be activists for women's rights and movements. And they did this in a way by being more of a engaging. They would have serious protests, but they also would engage in what they called guerrilla theater. So one of the things that they would do is uh, they would protest a lot of uh, bridal ceremonies or bridal uh, events. And one of the favorite things, one of my favorite things that they did is they would go to, they went to this one bridal event and they like unleashed a bunch of white mice and and to ways to like scare people and stuff like that. And they would have like these famous quotes like "Always a bride, never a person." Or here comes a slave off to their graves, you know, just really emphasize, just yeah, just really. <laughs> That's amazing. Always a bride, never yeah, a person. Yeah, really, just emphasizing, you know, really fighting for female uh, equal rights and finding our own identities. Uh, the group was the founding member of which was Robin Morgan, and she blended radical elements of increase of the increasing feminist movement with the iconography of witches. And one of the main ways to join uh, any of these witch organizations was that she said was if you are a woman and dare to look within yourself you're a witch and that's the part of witch uh now it was really important about being an anonymous and they wear a lot of the same costumes they wear makeup to cover their faces because a lot of these these women were members were actual active members in a lot of feminist organization and groups and some of them were really were witches who really took this seriously but it was a way to kind of by all dressing the same and all looking the same they're all able to be the same and all on the same page 
Um, so which as an organization continued to grow and it grew throughout the 1970s and we see in the 1970s was a time for women to find their sexual identities um, and this was very common in the identity of the witch. Uh, a woman's magic is deeply intertwined with her sexuality. So as this is happening, we're also seeing the drive for gender equality, so equal pay for equal work. The chance to be able to do jobs that are traditionally held for men, the whole abortion reform came about, um, admission to colleges at the same rate. And it was, a woman's, it was a woman's movement who attracted women of all races, background, and political beliefs. I am woman, hear me roar. That went the lyrics of the popular Helen Reddy song, I Am Woman from 1972, which is kind of the epitome of the 70s for, you know, the women's liberation movement, female empowerment and whatnot. So it's important to look at what the life in the, life in the 70s were for women. Men definitely did not like the fact that women were coming out of their social norm and fighting for their own equal rights, which a lot of them believed that they didn't, uh, you know, belong in. That's not their place. According to men, women really belonged to the home with the kids, cooking something really good for dinner. And that was it. With more women in the workforce because of this, you know, fight for equal rights and wanting more out of your life, uh, less jobs were available to men. And then the women's roles, quote unquote, women roles of the house were being left for them. During this time, women were rising slowly, but surely. And the 70s were a time where gender roles were being redefined for the future generations. The women's liberation movement of the 70s uh, were definitely in part to a reaction against the type of happy homemaker that was often portrayed in television sitcoms of previous decades. Uh, like it or not, girls growing up in the 50s would have been exposed to role models such as Housewives and Leave it to Beaver. Those are the women that they saw on a day-to-day -day basis. Those women whose their career goals were really just getting the kids off to school and serving dinner on time and looking exactly perfect while you're doing that. You had no opinions of your own either. Um, a working woman as a role model actually didn't come along until maybe the late 1960s and early 70s where shows like Julia, where Diane Carroll starred in the first non-stereotypical network TV role for an African-American woman as Julia Baker, a single mom who worked full-time as a nurse. And then the Mary Tyler Moore show in which Moore portrayed Mary Richards, a career-oriented single woman who's a news producer for a TV station in Minneapolis. So definitely going outside the, the box as a role model for women at that time. So the 70s actually was the second wave of feminism. Jess touched on this, but you know, the what they were looking at um, for women's lib was, you know, including family, sexuality, and work, education, empowering women, having more women working, feminist art and feminist theory. The feminist goals of the 1970s were as such. Rethinking society with a feminist theory. Look at aspects, all aspects of life and society from a feminist or female view. Abortion rights on demand. Everybody should have safe access to abortion. Desexing the English language. It's still a thing today, but language is often centered around men. Education, equality legislation, promoting political uh, participation, rethinking women's quote-unquote roles in the nuclear family households, supporting women as parents, representation of popular culture, and expanding the voice of women and other movements. Women have been fighting for female rights, for our rights as women, since even the time of just after World War II when we had the suffragettes. 
the suffragettes movement and then we have here in the 1960s and 70s we have uh, organizations growing bigger and bigger to fight for women's rights and what's so interesting so interesting and i read this in uh, satanic feminism when looking at the idea of the witch and how men or the patriarchy likes to associate uh, political rights uh, feminist resistance or any kind of means of denying the sovereignty of men in their lives as female hysteria uh, that women are seen as hysteric as hysterical or hysterics who are you know evil or in a way uh, satanic and especially if they combine the elements of witchcraft involved in it and so it's interesting that an organization like Witch comes out in the 1960s and throughout the 1970s and we had seen how men particularly react to women who start standing up for themselves and fighting for their rights and speaking be out outside the kitchen. The image of the witch embodies self-directed feminine power along with sexual and intellectual freedom. Witches represent political radicalism which men don't like and don't want to see. And what's interesting is um, in using the image of the witch, Heather Booth, who took part in the Chicago Witch Actions and is also considered one of the trailblazing campaigners and organizers of, uh, of events, I have this quote from her that really spoke to me in the sense of what was happening in the 1960s and 70s and with, with using the image of the witch. And because of one of the many things is that women's movement changed us. We changed from traditional roles, from being in the background, not being so visible, not taking risks, not challenging traditional conventions, to taking action, taking risk, and standing up for what we believed in. Some important events that led up to and included in the women's liberation movement of the uh, 1970s, the second wave of feminism. So in 1923, the Equal Rights Amendment, the ERA, which states that equality of rights under the law should not, shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. That was only in 1923. It was originally introduced to Congress in 1923, three years after women gained the right to vote. 1963, uh, the first indication, the public indication that change was coming was the publication of Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique. She spoke of the problem that, quote unquote, laid buried and unspoken in the minds of suburban housewives, utter boredom and lack of fulfillment. Women had, told, had been told that they had it all, nice houses, lovely children, responsible husbands, they were deadened, becoming essentially domesticated. They were too socially conditioned to recognize their own desperation. I used to have this book. I don't know what I did with it, but when I was a teenager, I had this book. In 1966, NOW, or the National Organization for Women, advocated for a fully equal partnership of the sexes. This is what feminism stems down to, essentially, right? soon endorsed the ERA, so that's the Equal Rights Amendment, and made passing it into the U.S. Constitution a top priority, because it hadn't been yet. We still didn't have equal rights. Um, in 1972, the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, was finally passed by both houses of Congress and President Richard Nixon. In 1973, in a controversial ruling on Roe versus Wade, finally, the United States Supreme Court legalized abortion. Sadly, now in the United States, what a trash fire that is, they're trying to remove that. We have come so far, and yet 
were just fucking throwing it down the toilet. So overall in the 70s, you know, women wanted equal pay for equal work, a chance of jobs traditionally reserved for men only. You know, they want, we got thankfully the legalization of abortion. We want more state supported child care centers. Um, we brought, those women brought the attention to the issues of women, domestic violence, marital rape, rape crisis, they wanted rape crisis centers, women's shelters. So overall, the goals of the feminist movement in the 70s were simple. Let women have freedom, equal opportunity, and control over their lives. So the image of the witch and female empowerment, and where does this all come from, and why should we care? So early images of the witch. So witch has been used as a metaphor for female resistance. Witches are representative of women who lead unconventional lives. They are outside of what, you know, patriarchal society deemed acceptable. You know, for instance, um, female-centered communities, sisterhoods, personal and sexual freedom, and political resistance. And then, of course, we were then punished for this. In Barbara Heinrichs and Deidre's English's Witches, Midwives, and Nurses, uh, they actually did a study of women as health workers situated in relation to the second wave feminist you know, rethinking the historical accounts of witches and witch hunts. Uh, they argued for witches as wise women and healers working with herbal medicines and suggesting that the medieval witch hunts represented a, quote unquote, a ruling class of terror directed against the female peasant population in which female witches represented a political, religious, and sexual threat to the churches and the state. Keith Thomas, who wrote English Witchcraft and Religion and the Decline of Magic, you know, he talked about how witches were usually poor and female, often, I'm gonna say middle-aged, you know, greater than 40, they're in their 50s or 60s. And maybe their motivation for using witchcraft at that time was a desire to escape poverty. A lot of these people were very poor. The devil was said to offer perpetual protection from the lack of food and, you know, lack of food and clothes, as well as some sexual satisfaction. Quote, unquote, like most forms of magic, it was a substitute for impotence and a remedy for anxiety and despair. These witches were, you know, that were accused of witchcraft. Um, they were perceived to be nonconformist, bad-tempered, and guilty of cursing and verbal outbursts. Very not of the norm. Uh, Elizabeth Rice, or Reese, uh, who wrote, Damned women, sinners and witches in Puritan New England, suggest that the concept of the witch and the charge of witchcraft help set and police the boundaries of female normality and acceptability, and of course, by punishing our female power and outspokenness. Mary Daly, so this woman is actually quite important to the image of the witch and, you know, rethinking said image of the witch. So she is the world's first feminist philosopher, so that's Mary Daly. So she saw in witches a hidden history of powerful women and reclaimed the figure of the hag as a powerful, liberated woman, coining the term hagiography. So overall, in, in witchcraft as a religion, there's like a triple goddess type belief, and it's understood to represent three biological stages of a woman's life, maiden, mother, and crone, which is also linked to turn to the phases of the moon. So Dali's choice of the crone or hag in her Rethinking of everything is significant because what she does is actually uh, provide feminist kind of identities to, in relation to femininity. That is, 
through a rejection of conventional, you know, ideas of femininity and womanhood and whatever, and modes of self-presentation, you know, showing the the untamed wild crone slash harpy witch figure, and excluding the more glamorous and socially acceptable maiden and mother positions. Early images of the witch were definitely very, very negative and ugly. You know, films started showing them in a more glamorous, beautiful way, you know, kind of starting with Wizard of Oz, who showed both the beauty and the beast of witchcraft, our wicked witch of the East and West. You know, other examples, Bell Book and Candle in the late 50s, things were a bit more glamorous. Bewitched in the early 1960s, who wouldn't want to be a witch and bewitched, you know what I mean? She was, it was all very mainstream and, you know, sweet, you know what I mean? Uh, Oh. I loved this quote. So a Wiccan priestess, author, and journalist said, the witch is woman as martyr. She is persecuted by the ignorant. She is the woman who lives outside of society and outside of society's definitions of women. Witchcraft in itself awakens a personal power within people who feel both oppressed and disenfranchised. And that is why when you look at a lot of the women who were persecuted for witchcraft back in the 16th, in the 16th and 17th century, it was really interesting doing our in memory of some of the witches, uh, the witches in quotations who were persecuted during the Salem witch trials. And in my research, every single one of those women were women who were unconventional. They lived outside the norm. You know, we had a woman who didn't who who changed up her dress of her Puritan garb, and that caused people to be upset. Or a woman who would be involved in legal disputes, or would take charge in taking care of her family. You have these women who are having power within themselves and were unconventional. And when we look at the image of the witch, we see that the women, the witch, is an unconventional woman. She is has her own ability to stand up for herself, to talk for herself, to do anything for herself that she needs to be done. And she's not, and she's also willing to take what she needs to get those things done. In the book uh, *Witched, Unleashed, Untamed, and Unapologetic* by Lisa Listar. This is actually a really important book to me because when I started my my own journey into witchcraft, it was one of the first books I read and really spoke to me. And she talks about the idea of magic. And when people think of the idea of magic, they want to be like, ooh, like you do like magic spells and stuff like that. You know, like literally things come from your fingers or, you know, you twitch your nose and things happen. And, and yeah, no, it doesn't really work like that. When we think about magic, we think about how how our own intuition and our own uh, body and our own knowledge kind of impacts our our magic abilities. And for women, uh, the source of our magic power comes from the way we influence life and death. Women, we are the reproducers, we are the reproducers of life. Um, From our body comes other forms, uh, comes another form of life. We are involved in death rituals when, when it comes to someone dying. You know, at the, by, when it comes to someone at the end of life, it's usually women taking care of that, that body and helping them transition to the next phase of their life. We understand sexuality. It's really sad and disheartening when we see women who feel uh, closed off from their own sexuality because any woman who is able to really explore that about themselves, you find a power within it. And there is a power within our own sexuality. And we also have a deep, deep knowledge of the nature of things. Uh, women are just naturally connected to natural elements of the world and our own instincts. So it's really interesting that when we do, when we become involved in the image of the witch, we see uh, there is a sense of empowerment. And what's interesting, as Kelly brought up, um, in the 1950s uh, and 60s, 
where before, whenever we would look back at folklore and we look at old images of witches, we'd always see the, the old crone and the hag and how ugly they were and disfigured and gross and they're the ones like cackling, hiding in the woods. Um, but then we all of a sudden see on TV the this good witch. And that was actually a very influential period and time period, a time frame for women to see women, women who were damaged by the results of the witch hunts and had a fear about becoming powerful women because they associated being powerful as by being persecuted if you're a witch. But then we see in the Wizard of Oz, we see the image of Glinda. She's the good witch. You know, she's beautiful. She's powerful. Um, then you also, like Kelly had mentioned, we see Samantha and Bewitch. I think myself, Samantha was a powerful image of a witch, but at the same time too, that show frustrated the hell out of me. I did watch it growing up. I admired it. I loved that she was a witch. I loved like her mother. Her mother was like the best thing about that show um, because she didn't take out, she didn't, she didn't put up with Darren's bullshit, but Samantha did. And there were so many times I'm like, Samantha, you could just fucking turn him into a rat and walk away from that, but you love him. So whatever. But we're outside of that. We see uh, women portrayed as positive, righteous, and strong. That not only are they powerful within the home, but they can be powerful outside of the home. And what, they were using elements of witchcraft to do that. You know, this month, this month's theme of, of witches and horror and female empowerment and whatnot. A question that was immediately brought to my mind was like, why witchcraft? What is witchcraft? What is Wicca? There's apparently differences in it. So really, why are women so drawn to this and you know i had asked jess some some of these things because this is a very it's very foreign territory to me this is not something i've ever really looked into as an atheist and a very empirical science-based person and non-spiritual whatsoever so this was you know going out of my norm of things that i was uh, you know looking into um and I thought it was important to, to state, you know, kind of the differences between Wicca and witchcraft, because we're overall more talking about, you know, uh, witchcraft. Um, so Wicca is actually a subset of paganism. It's a religion where whose followers are called Wiccans and witches. Usually it's uh, Wiccans. They acknowledge a variety of gods and goddesses. It's, you know, they have a series of beliefs based around an observance to or worship of deities and or spirits. Witchcraft is not a religion, but a magical practice that transcends religious belief, or lack thereof, and people can belong to any religion or none at all. May or, they may or may not believe in any gods or goddesses, um, and it does include magic and spellcasting. Witchcraft and Wicca can also, you know, they can be seen as returning to some old religions, you know, the reawakening of the goddess and of woman's power. Living in the society that we do, highly patriarchal, has a lot of damaging effects on us, uh, from many avenues and in many ways in different ways for all of us but definitely it negatively impacts our lives and our feelings and our mental health and our emotional states and just our lives so by recreating a pre-patriarchal religion where female strength and their bodies are respected this provides a huge boost to female empowerment and we can regain self-confidence so four important reasons why women you know, tend to go towards Wicca as a belief system. One, the symbol of a goddess is, you know, affirmation of our legitimacy of female power. Uh, our body, menstrual, and, you know, and sex positivity, Western religions frowned upon and devalued all of that. Uh, women's will is now valued and legitimated. Western religion, again, saw this as the fall of humankind. What the fuck, right? 
Uh, it allows them to value relationships also with other women and not this, not just their relationships to men, right? That, that sense of sisterhood and bonding with women. And I think overall we have gone, for some of us, quite far away from that. And that's really just too bad. And there are nine, apparently, nine values of Wicca that are appealing to feminists. So bringing, you know, the feminism, female empowerment to, you know, because there is a, quite a, a vast variety of you know, women who identify as a feminist and run their lives that way that are also into Wicca or value and identify with the image of the witch or of witches themselves. So nine values that are, you know, super appealing to, to women and feminists. So independence, self-actualization, we're taught to be submissive and dependent on men and other things. The feeling of passion and emotion, learning to trust our own feelings that we're valuable uh, we're taught that our, we're over-emotional and we have to suppress our feelings. You know, we talked about being called hysterical in medieval times, you know, witches ended up being, sorry, women were, once we kind of went away from the witch image and calling women witches, now we're hysterics. And that's, you know, it's problematic in itself. Love. So personal love, passionate love, family, sensual love. The cycle of life, so being in tune with the world, nature, our own menstruation, because that is apparently very shameful. So just being in tune with, our, you know, life. Magic, or the perception of reality. Not mystical and magic per se necessarily, but the ability to perceive reality beyond the five senses. You know, we can change our consciousness at will. Six, egalitarianism, ritual nudity. Also seen as the removal of classes and old rituals and even rituals now for some people. So the old ritual nudity was distorted and seen as, you know, women were seen as insatiable, lusty, carnal women, which is inappropriate, apparently. Um, social change, we, they'll advocate and be flexible for, we wanna change the status quo for women. Physical senses, let's celebrate them and not devalue them, all of our physical senses. Healing, the last one is healing midwives, abortionists, herbalists. Women were the first for all of these things. We have respect for nature and the environment. A brief note about the sexuality of women, and again, we will reiterate a lot of important points here because it's happened time and time again and they're really important aspects of the image of, a, of the witch. Also, the Malus Maleficarum will come up time and time again because that book was bananas. And apparently you can buy a copy of it on Amazon right now. And I'm intrigued <laughs> because it's so bananas. <laughs> I have had some books tell me to read it, but then don't to read it because it'll get you angry, but hopefully you're righteously angry, but at the so same time, you don't read nuts. it. I, it's <laughs> just out of this world. So a quote from there is all witchcraft stems from carnal lust, which in women is insatiable. So apparently that's incredibly dangerous. I think that's sexy as hell. And well, you know, we're sexual beings, but we have to be suppressed. So we're very dangerous things. Society and religion has been controlling our sexuality and reproductivity. Re so women can, you know, so we've been really trying to reclaim these aspects for ourselves. We want to be valued and want to be in control in literally any way we can which I think is where the, the image of the witch for even modern women now is so very important. And so that's why as feminism has grown, the image, the interest in witchcraft has grown. And we've actually seen a resurgence in the interest of witches and Wicca in the last, um, 
I almost want to say like you know the last 10 years, but we also recognize too that during the whole campaign, presidential campaign, the whole idea when Hillary Clinton was being attacked and being labeled as a witch, the wicked witch of the West, and so or the wicked witch of the Democrats, and we actually women were going up like, yes, we are witches. This is we are claim we are reclaiming this word. We are reclaiming this, and this is part of our feminist movement. We've actually seen a resurgence of the um, witch organizations in a couple of areas in the U.S. have come back. So the, to kind of sum up the image of the witch and our interest in it, we see that women have also become more interested in witchcraft and Wicca because of the expressed sexuality in it. And as Kelly said, this will come back time and time again because sexuality was persecuted against um, toward, against women in the past, and we are trying to return back. We are working and still, unfortunately, persecuted against women, but returning back to a more positive sex uh, environment for women. And that's why we return to we return to these ideas in Wicca and witchcraft to really celebrate this in women, and celebrate our own power in that way. And in the 1970s, uh, while Kelly has brought a distinction between uh, witchcraft and Wicca. They do cross, they do lap over and they do cross each other and there's, and both, there are both important, there are important figures who have written for both Wicca and have been taken elements for witchcraft and women who study witchcraft will still read these elements of these books, but Miriam Simos, uh, also known as Starhawk, she wrote influential feminist Wiccan text, The Spiral Dance, a rebirth of the ancient religion of the great goddess. And it focuses on ecological concerns because typically uh, witches and feminists are very concerned about environment, our environmental impact because we are naturally connected to the world, uh, our feminist spirituality and shamanism. And she quotes in this book, to reclaim the word witch is to reclaim our right as women to be powerful. And to me, that is a very important phrase. I think for myself, when I uh, proclaimed myself as a witch, I was reclaiming my own identity and reclaiming my own power that I felt like I lost for many, many years. And also, as uh, interest in uh, witchcraft is growing with feminism, we see a lot of the combination of feminist actions and spirituality. And, what's the, and what I find the most important thing, and I will not identify myself as Wiccan. I was interested in, in Wicca uh, in my um, early years and early university, but I found to me it was too structured and too organized of a religion. It just really didn't sit with me, and I have total 100 respect, uh, 100 respect for Wicca and for what it- 100 percent. <laughs> That's not a Freudian slip. Yeah, I have 100 percent <laughs> respect for Wicca and what it's done for the pagan community and for uh, which, which, uh, for witches in general, but I myself will identify more as just a solitary practitioner, as a witch, I follow more of the path of witchcraft um, because it's more fluid, there has more fluidity to it and more um, liberalism, as I would say. But what we find in that it's not necessarily, a, it's, a, it's not necessarily a religion that appeals to women, it's women finding within them strength in themselves and identifying with their own witchiness. And a quote from Susie X, uh, she was the front woman of, witch, of a witchcore punk band called Shady Hawkins. She writes, I think one of the biggest conspiracies of a male-dominated society is the suppression of female intuition. In that women have been conditioned to second-guess our own hunches or second-guess our own abilities all the time. We know when we can just tell someone is creepy right off the bat. That is your intuition speaking. When we look at, so we discuss in detail the context of the feminist movement in the 1970s and the image of the witch and the idea of the good witch. And when I look at the film, uh, Season of the Witch, I kind of see Joan 
as both the good witch and also the witch who is uh, the woman who's finding in female empowerment what's really interesting is a little history about this film is that it was originally titled jack's wife and the distributors had cut out major parts in the film and they wanted to retitle it Hungry Wives. So actually, if anyone has gotten the, the new Blu-ray release of it, when you watch it, even though it's a season of The Witch, but when you watch it, it says Hungry Wives and you're like, what? Um, they actually wanted to market this film as a softcore porn. Um, however, it failed to find an audience and was later re-released as known as a Season of The Witch after the success of George Romero's Dawn of the Dead. This film had a very small budget. There had many issues with the distributor wanting to make scenes more pornographic. Uh, George Romero refused because he did have an idea of where he wanted this film to go. This film is not really a horror film. It's more, they, they like to consider it more about cults and there's two kind of different versions of cults. We see the cult of society and patriarchy and then they look at the elements of uh, Joan becoming a witch as like another form of a cult that she's going into. And this film has very mixed and controversial reviews. Some film, some people feel that this film looks very seedy and it looks like a badly done porno and it's kind of problematic with the uneven acting and it's uh, a lot of talking throughout the film. While on a positive note, this film is ahead of its time, assuming a more extreme position about the idea of the step for wives and the whole impact of films like Thelma and Louise. So Season of the Witch and our protagonist Joan, you know, so thinking about it, you know, why did she turn to witchcraft? Everything that we've talked about, you know, is coming, you know, into this point of the banality of life. She was that suburban housewife. Her, she had a daughter that really was not involved in the life in her life whatsoever. Her husband is trash. I have to say it. Um, you know, he's more seen as a roommate. Um, there's very little touching. Like he'll just leave the house with barely even looking at her. It was like, okay, see you later, and just leaves. There's no touching, there's no romance, there's no love. He's also hit her. He hits her once in the movie, so he's abusive. There's obviously no sex happening. I think they are living, living in, sleeping in a twin bed. That bed is so tiny. I couldn't even stand yeah. it, right? <laughs> like, it's not a double, but it's not a twin. I don't know what's happening with that bed. <laughs> yeah. Well, I love, like, how in that movie, he gets mad. Like, she has a terrible nightmare and she wakes up and she's like punching him he's like what the hell and he's like and instead of like comforting her and being like hey what 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 happened in your dream he's like go have a glass of milk you'll be fine go back to sleep yeah. i'm like and then turns over i'm like you fucking dick yeah you know it's oh you're just overreacting it's just who cares just oh you're disturbing my sleep he's not a warm human being that's for sure um i that beginning that opening scene you know says a yes. lot about you know her how she's feeling her husband how he treats her and the react you know their dynamic so he's she's following behind him not removing you know moving the bran branches so she can walk you know nicely through the trees he's she's being hit by the branches she's trailing behind her trailing behind her husband he's obviously not paying any attention to her because i think he's reading the newspaper he has absolutely no yeah. regard to her as a human being and then later on he hooks her up to a dog collar and leash and puts her in a dog crate in a cage outside which kind yeah. of is foreshadowing to the ending of the movie that I want to talk about later. Yeah. Um, and throughout the beginning, like pretty much throughout the, the entire movie until you get to the end, she keeps looking at herself in the mirror and she looks haggard and old, maybe like a hag. You know what I mean? And she just sees herself as like withered and old and she's not living her life at all. And she gets to the, you know, the, the concept of 
of witchcraft and things. They're all, you know, all of her friends are at the party and they're like, ooh, you know, so-and-so's into, she's a witch. Ooh, and there's some misconceptions that they talk about, you know. Yeah. The negative aspects, that negative old image of the witch, but she's, her curiosity is piqued, right? Yep. Yeah, we see that she has, I don't think she, she doesn't have a job. I, and she knows, I, I don't want to say obviously, because we never see her at a job, but that would be very common for women of that time, give or take, um, early 70s, that she wouldn't have a job. She doesn't have any hobbies. Like, she doesn't really have much in life. Well, that's right, because, like, her daughter is old enough to kind of be on her own and take care of herself. So, right, traditionally, women would be, like, looking after the child. and But, like you said, she doesn't have anything now, so she has no identity, like, no, no sense of self. Yeah, she has no job, no hobbies, obviously minimal, li- uh, minimal life or joy in life. Um, she's a, a housewife stuck in a rut, you know, so open up the opportunity to get a hobby, do something else in your life. And we talked about the Greg aspect of things. I'm like, yes, please. She is a sexual being. Despite what age you're at, like women, we are sexual beings. She is a sexual woman. She's beautiful. And, you know, she's really well put together and she's stunning and she, um, she's a person, right? And, and she's deprived in all aspects of life. She's not satisfied. And that comes back to the, liber- the women's liberation movement and everything. I mean, that was still an era of like submission and being a very domesticated woman. I found it really interesting that she only smiles twice in that movie. Only twice. Her daughter compliments her in the beginning of the movie saying that she looks nice which is amazing because she obviously never hears that from her partner in life. And then when she first has sex with Greg, yeah, you're going to be smiling. It's the first time you've had an orgasm <laughs> in probably a decade or 20 years or something. You know, that she's finally having fun, letting loose. She's very done up. I mean, a lot of women at the time were very done up and like very prim and proper in their garb and how they dressed. And, you know, her collars are always really tight. Her hair is always tight. You know what I mean? Generally speaking, um, she only smiles twice. And I found that very sad it's really interesting too because in the film it's brought up uh i think it was brought up twice that she's unconventional and she's unconventional because she's an exhibitionist and i thought that was really interesting because we don't ever really talk about it much but she is uh always like there's that scene like after her daughter compliments her like she takes off her robe and she like lays naked in her bed yeah so essentially she is someone who <laughs> so essentially she is someone who enjoys being naked she likes being naked she likes being exposed and that you already sense that there's this unconventional nature to joan and that's why she can you can feel like this whole idea of being trapped being leashed in dog collared into this lifestyle it's really edging at her really bothering her and when she opens up to when she goes into the whole um element of witchcraft and exploring that you see as she's like her clothing becomes less tight to her and she has like she's um, she's more willing to expose herself uh more freely so what i see in season of the witch is i see how joan's transition into witchcraft is not only seeing herself becoming an independent woman it's also being very entwined with her own uh, her own embracing of her own femininity and feminism within the image of the witch she finds her own independence she's given herself her agency she no longer just sees herself as a as a wife to an abusive husband and a mother to a very uh, self-involved daughter Um, she becomes more engaged with the world instead of being being very disengaged however what i find interesting 
about this film is as much as I I love it and I love all the imagery the the witchy imagery the seeing her do the rituals when she goes when she's in the yellow garb and she goes outside under the moonlight and conjures Greg to her um, I really like I really like that moment when like she does uh, sleep with Greg for the first time because she's like oh I brought I conjured you here I you know I brought you to me and, and she's like okay she has a sense of power that she's like that she went outside the social norm and she brought a younger lover over but she also fears it I want to become a member I thought you were intrigued by it when you were so afraid being afraid is necessary to believe in I know that it's real that that it works i've actually caused things to happen well we'll have to talk about it gets brought up while she is very intrigued by the image of the witch she has a fear around it because it's definitely not something that you mess with it's not you're meant you're, you're messing with elements earthly elements um spiritual elements but also with your own, your own inner elements your own inner intuition intuition and in a way what i find interesting about this film is that she's following these rituals uh, and while she, while she moves from, while she's trying to escape one conformist world, she conforms in another way. Um, and this is a, probably where you're going to bring up the image at the end of the movie, where you see her being initiated into the into um, into a coven and into the actual life of a witch, and she has to say certain vows and she has to, you know, uh, be sitting a certain way and. Um, um, like Kelly, like you probably picked up on that right away, the image of the collar around her neck. To me, that's a, a big scene, but also what was a really important scene for me at the end of the movie is when she's at a party after her husband's uh, death and or she's back in society with her friends and now she's a novelty to her friends now because, oh, she's a witch, did you not know? And they're all excited and the woman's talking to her and she's like, oh, you're a witch, I have so many questions. And you see this look on Joan's face that she's not truly happy and I don't want to say that that she that there's something within her that she went from conforming from went from one world um, into another world and she's still not truly happy with herself and that she's now all of a sudden become a novelty to everyone and that the statement too that can be very upsetting and, and depressing as well so she finds her independence but at what at what cost yeah exactly that was very in line with my my thoughts and feelings about it. Um, yeah, so really not much has changed in her life. She now is just has a new label. Instead of being Jack's wife, she is now a witch, but still maybe in her life trap. Like she still has this husband. Oh no, sorry. I was still has a husband. No, 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 he's dead. Right. <laughs> but you're right. That's kind of conforming in one way and going into another. Unfortunately, we don't see what happens after that. Um, but... Uh, I liked, yeah, the end of the movie. So they're at a party. So in the background, around the same time that she says that she's a witch, somebody's like, oh, that's Jack's wife. And maybe, I think maybe she doesn't seem happy, but there might be a slightly coy smile on her face. But like, she is no longer Jack's wife. She is now a witch and she is her own person. That's kind of how I looked at that. Um, some may look at it saying, well, people are still calling her Jack's wife. And like, yeah, well... No, she is not calling herself that, at least now, and she is calling herself a witch. Uh, there was one little thing I wanted to point out, which, because she keeps having those reoccurring dreams of what I thought was like a devil, like a person, a man in a devil's mask, and like she keeps having those, keeps having those dreams. And there was one uh, witch article that I read in that 
they saw it as more of the green man, which is, represents liberation of the untamed wilderness and humankind's untamed nature. So not the devil, but perhaps a symbol of her upcoming and trials of trying to be a more liberated woman living her own life. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, because every dream, it changes a bit and becomes more and more intense. And then you think at the end of that, when he comes the final time, like she's outside in the garden and she's, you know, having that dream. She goes down to the basement and he approaches her then. She thinks he's free of him. Um, and then that's where she finds the gun. And he's like, yeah, this is like the elements of showing her that this is your liberation is at hand. So that's going to lead us into our next movie, The Autopsy of Jane Doe. Come on! We're trapped down here, please! Also another new watch for me, you know, Autopsy of Jane Doe, I believe, came out in 2006. Not 2006. Fuck, why am I going back in time? 2016. It's like a relatively new release, and I'm usually behind on new releases. Uh, and so I hadn't seen it. I'd heard wonderful things. So I blind bought it, and it was a first watch for me. So I was pretty pumped because I had heard such such wonderful things about it. So I just went out and bought it. I had a feeling I was going to like it. I have pretty good intuition <laughs> on that. I kind of know what I'm going to like and not like. Yeah, and for me, I had same thing. I hadn't seen it before. I had heard about it. And then last year at Horrorama, I picked it up a copy of it at Raven Banner's booth. And uh, I was generally surprised when I watched it, especially when I found the witch element to it. Yes, I remember you bought it last year, and I was like, fuck, I should buy it too. And then when I went back to buy it, they were all yeah. gone. That was probably the first movie. It was a good price too. I think it was like 20 bucks. It was they, great. Yeah, um, that was probably one of their deals. I got like two movies there. So good. So sadly, as because I like to read a lot about, you know, horror movies and whatnot, I the whole witch element was completely spoiled to me. So it was not a surprise. God, just really too bad because that was... It took away a little bit of, you know, the shock and, and, like, the reveal of it, but it still was quite goddamn devastating when that was something that we learned um, had happened to her and that she was a witch, per se, you know? So that's a portion of what I liked about it. You know, I... Fuck. This movie was fantastic. I actually had moments of feeling fear... So I have this really irrational fear of old, old music. <laughs> okay. So when it was going, there's like the shots between the radio, you know, having let the sunshine in and going back and forth between that and back to the dead fucking face of yeah. her. I was like, ah, no, 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 no. 
there's something like that combination of the old music. It's also in Jeepers Creepers. Oh, I can't, can't stand that. Music. Yeah, Jeepers Creepers. The old music. <laughs> so I found the movie like really creepy. It was very unsettling. I had moments of actually feeling fear. I thought it was beautifully shot and really interestingly shot. Uh, and obviously the premise is like very refreshing and goddamn fantastic. Yeah, so I'm just going to like sum up my likes and dislikes. There's nothing I dislike about this film. I actually really like this film. Um, my second viewing made me like it even more. When I first watched it, it did it did it definitely scared me. I really liked how they combined like the old way of uh, identifying your dead with like you know newer sciences. That, that whole eye concept of like, the bell on the corpse's uh, toes. Um, just everything. I, I just I really enjoy the film. And when it when it definitely has like especially like the scene when they look at like that second layer of skin they unpeeled it and that's when like i saw like the symbolism like oh shit there's witchcraft afoot like there's something like <laughs> <laughs> there's witchcraft afoot <laughs> yeah there's like i was like shit this is awesome um yeah so i definitely i definitely i i like i i'll just bring the two together i i both i like i have not much i don't dislike about this film what i disliked about it was two two to three main things one there were some really obvious jump scares in it that were, you know, kind of kitschy. And I was like, yeah, this is going to happen. Like peering underneath the door. Yep. No. Like there, that, uh, that, those were super obvious, a bunch of the jump scares. So I'm not into that. But I could see them being effective for some people. Frankly, I'm, I'm afraid by old music. So, you know, different strokes, right? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I didn't like the, the – I thought the relationship between the, the – the father and son very contrived and I didn't really like their acting like I just thought it was like this thing that was thrown in and it just didn't really flow well with the movie I mean I love Brian Cox as an actor overall um but I just I didn't like the relationship um so I didn't like that that was something that really stood out to me um you know what and also the fucking cat death I'm spoiling this um, not the fact that the cat died, just that that whole that scene that went on for way too long. Because we see that cat once, and it just like you don't know that that is their cat necessarily, that there's any relationship to that cat. Then the cat's like found mutilated and dead, and it's like this five-minute scene of them with like these somber, weird looks on their faces. And then, oh yeah, the cat's not dead yet, and he has to like break the cat's neck. I was like, oh, that's not realistic. Also. Um, I was just like, what, what, what is this scene? What's the importance of this scene? I, I, I think I read that that was like the wife's cat and yeah. So it got, yeah. yeah, Like it got brought up in like the, when you first saw the cat hissing at the body and the cops like, wow, that cat's nasty. And he's the father was like, yeah, he's, he's gotten nastier and nastier over the years, but I keep him around because he was my wife's cat type thing. And they're like, okay. And then yeah. And they talk about how. Yeah, that was, yeah. Any animal that dies in a movie is very upsetting. I don't well, like, like I it. don't like it, but, but I, I don't didn't like the reactions. I didn't think they were normal human reactions. It was, like, really weird and dead to me. I didn't I didn't like it. Yeah, it was um, interesting, too, because <sighs> that you think, like, oh, it was the witch that killed the cat because the cat knew there was something wrong with the body and that the cat was going to somehow warn them that there's something going weird with the body but then typically women and animals are usually in sync so it was yeah that's a weird that's it you know what as honestly when i think back at it it's like an unnecessary element of the film that doesn't need to be involved you really don't even need it it really didn't yeah i, I, I agree 
So one of the reasons why I chose this film because of the because even though like the witch element is very subtle and it's not really there and you don't really think about it really to the end, I chose it as part of the dichotomy of the good witch and the evil witch. And do we see uh, Jane Doe as an evil witch? Well, we'll talk more about this as we go through it. But historically, um, images of the witch all throughout um, history have always been seen as monsters. And in Kristen Soleil's book, um, Witch, Sluts, and Feminists, she talks about how in many world mythologies, we, were, we saw the witch or we feared a goddess of darkness. They were associated with death and destruction. The, the image of the witch as being ugly, haggard, evil she's out for her own means you know she will you know mash up young babies to help her broom fly as we saw in uh it's this 2017 film the witch but typically the witch in early tales would always serve as a warning they were demonized their image was to punish women for stepping outside of the domestic sphere so if you if you disobeyed your husband in any way or if you uh did something wrong or was um, horrible in the eyes of the church you were seen as ugly and typically if you did any of those ugly things it would physically change your your physical shape and that we would see like the image of the witch of having like an ugly crooked nose and that she was you know in green more green as in the wicked witch or like you know bad skin and, and just like ugly and that into in the two of some women that's a huge fear that whole change of self and you know whole uh, seeing yourself as a body and typically, um, historically and in the folklore, women with any type of occult knowledge were usually uh, simply poor and they were typically seen as social outcasts and they're usually the first victims of any type of persecution, any type of going after um, in any form of a witch hunt. But interesting enough, so we see like these old historical images of women as uh, witch, evil witches, but more in recent years, we're seeing um, women who are glamorous um, as deadly witches and because this is where we're seeing women using their body their beauty and their sexuality as a deadly weapon and that you know is very evil as seen as an evil means to the church and that typically if we saw like a beautiful like if we saw any images of evil witches as typically beautiful and using their body and their sexuality as a weapon against men we're really good at doing that too <laughs> Um, so early images of the evil witch and witches overall, you know, we were, we were, um, they were, I wasn't there, um, they were satanic witches, you know, those medieval witches were all about Satan. So between the era of 13 to 1400s, there was a lot of propaganda spread about paganism and sort of labeling witches as evil because they distorted the elements, certain elements of paganism sorry, certain elements of witchcraft to make it evil, whereas originally it's not evil, but then we made it so. For example, you know, they sold themselves to the devil, they worshiped the devil, similar to the horned god of paganism, which is a nature worship, they had nature worshiping beliefs, old deity worship. Before our medieval witches, the earliest known witches were feared not as agents of the devil. That came later on with the Christian church. Um, but those early witches were thought to possess magical, terrifying powers. And later on, I really want to go through like a timeline of like where we came from like point A to B to Z to fucking burning witches at the stake. So when witchcraft was actually deemed heresy by the church in the 14th century, you know, all those services that quote unquote witches had previously performed were now labeled as crimes, particularly midwifery. Main crime that they were accused of 
um, which was something that they like couldn't possibly commit, which was collaborating literally with the devil. We could not actually do that. They were accused of, you know, copulating with the devil, causing male impotence, causing the penis to disappear, and of stealing men's penises. <laughs> Maybe, you know, that is, you know, referring to men's fears of castration by women. So a silly quote from that malus maleficarum. And what then is to be thought of those witches who in this way sometimes collect male organs in great numbers, as many as 20 or 30 members together and put them in a bird's nest or shut them up in a box where they move themselves like living members and eat oats and corn and, are, and as been seen by many and is a matter of common report. That's nuts. Like, no wonder why they looked as at witch, witches or those women that they are accusing of witches as being really dark and evil. Because look at this. They're going to take your penis away. Um, so a lot of the reasons, of, you know, those bad, I'm going to say bad and negative and, and those negative images of the witch, um, you know, goes back to the phallocentric, I love that word, uh, definition of woman as the other but obviously the weaker and dangerous complement to man. Uh, the major reason given for women's quote-unquote otherness is her carnal nature, which we touched on earlier, where women are less intelligent, we're less spiritual, and more like children. Another quote from the Malus Maleficarum, but the natural reason is that she is more carnal than a man, as it is clear from her many carnal abominations. Obviously, because we had sex with the devil, because that's what we do, just want to have sex with the devil all the time. That book is permeated with an extreme hatred towards women and fear of their imaginary powers of castration. Like, no doubt women and men were accused of witchcraft. Like, they eventually confessed to all kinds of things in order to, like, bring about the, you know, the end of their torture. They even sometimes confessed to crazy, minute details of their sexual acts with the devil, including information about the size of his member, its texture, and shape. Because that's really what, what the church wanted to hear about. It's like this weird sexual thing. And it's like that whole book is all about, you know, sex with the devil. And it's very sexy, but in a very negative way, that book. So again, in Soleil's uh, book, she talks about how the Catholic Church really amped up hate against powerful, sexual, and unconventional women in the 1400s. And then this time, we see that in our, even in our time that the witch became an icon of evil and the evils of women that weakened men based upon the folklore and the outlandish imaginations of the inquisitors such as Heinrich, Hammer of the Witches, I don't even say the Italian, the Latin version of it because I'll just butcher the name. It was a time where the patriarchy could not control the, feminine, the female magic and her sexuality and thus women were evil and must be demonized because they were threats. And also, too, the image of an angry woman is terrifying. And uh, men can, uh, I guess men can attest when, an, when a woman is angry, they, that's pretty scary. <laughs> we are a force of nature that cannot be contended with. Hell half the fury of a woman scorned, right? A exactly right. And also, Kelly brought this up really early on when we talked about uh, witches and women, who, especially who were healers. When women were healers, they were considered a threat to the new graduates of doctors, primarily coming from the church in the uh, 1400, in the 1600s, um, because he, the church itself wanted to dominate the field of, uh, medical, of the medical field and have absolute authority over it, right? So why would we have these old wise women, you know, messing with the ways of their trying to heal the people? 
And so that leads us into the whole image of persecution and what actually happened to witches. You know, anyone who was seen as strange, who was foreign, if you're an independent woman, if you were a, of a gen, different gender uh, presentation. So I think that's very interesting. And I think it would be really interesting to look further back to is the historical images of, you know, uh, ch uh, challenging uh, gender stereotypes and challenging gender norms. And even then, sexual orientation. We also knew that homosexuality was prevalent throughout history. So if you had any kind of orientation or any kind of inkling that was different in your you know your sexual ways also too witchcraft was deemed as a crime a criminum exceptum or a known as an ex exceptional crime that required exceptional punishment and we know that the torture of these women was brutal it was from you know stripping them naked Horrifically searching their bodies for, you know, the witch's mark or for like extra nipples. You know, they were they were poked at, they were prodded at, their hair was like completely, you know, sh uh, shaved off, like all, uh, all elements of hair on their body. You know, they were put on incredible elements of torture, you know, stretched out, you know, hanged for days without any food or water. Um, and on top of that too, you know, there's also the whole element of uh, drowning the witch if she, if she is put in the water and if she drowns, then she's not a witch. If she floats, then she is a witch. So she's dead regardless of, of her of, of, of her innocence. Being a really uh, of a sad time is that persecutors, the inquisitors, really encourage women to turn against each other, to turn against their sisters and accusations. And this was a way for the church and a way for the patriarchy was to break the and weaken the community among women. Because we do see that in earlier societies and earlier pagan cultures that it was actually more of a matriarchal, matriarchal system and that a lot of the uh, influence uh, in society came from women's circles, uh, women's organizations, uh, you know, old wise women, uh, women's councils to help gear their community towards the health and wealth and betterment of the, of the organization. This is really prevalent in pagan societies. And of course, when we have the Catholic Church trying to dominate and wipe out these pagan societies and women are the forebearers of it, we must wipe them out. And what, what's the best way to uh, break up a community is to divide them and dividing women against women. So in the books that I've read, especially in books on witchcraft in my own journey, we, we see this really sad element as we see the moment sisters turning against sisters is it's pinpointed back to the early uh, witch hunts in the 16th and 17th centuries. So the definition of persecution, I love definitions, is the systematic mistreatment of an individual or group by another individual or group. The most common forms are religious persecution, racism, and political persecution. Though obviously there is some natural overlap between the terms, but really it's the systematic, which we see with the persecution of witch, witches by an individual or group, or say in a group of religious folks. So a timeline, because I was really curious as to be like, where, how did this all happen? How did we get from, like, how did we get to the incredibly awful, tragic witch hunts and burnings and torture of women and mainly women? Um, during uh, medieval times, right? So I looked back a little bit. So in 560 BC, the Bible condemns witches. So Exodus 22:18, thou, thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. Leviticus 20:27, 20, 
A man also or woman that hath a familiar spirit, or that is a wizard, shall surely be put to death. They shall stone them with stones, their blood shall be upon them. I think in the autopsy of Jane Doe they actually got this wrong, because they said they mentioned Leviticus a number of times, but it was actually that Exodus quote. But yeah, so they got that wrong. It doesn't matter. That thou shalt not suffer which to live is awful. And grit, but awful. In 420 AD, we, had, we saw St. Augustine. So he was an influential theologian in the early Christian church. So in that time, he argued that God alone could suspend the normal laws of the universe. So neither Satan or witches had supernatural powers or were capable of doing any kind of magic. So in his mind, and at that time, like witches were actually powerless and they didn't, the church did not need to concern themselves with them. They were nothing to worry about. They cannot cause any actual harm. Don't worry about it. Hundreds of years go by. In 1208, we have Pope Innocent III, just talked about him earlier. So he opened a, an attack on some heretics, so the Cathars. So Catharism was a relig uh, religious group of Christians. It was like a Christian dualist. Um, there was like a revival movement in some areas of Europe. So obviously they're heretics. They don't believe exactly what the Christians believe. Um, so they believed in a world where uh, God and Satan were at war. Um, but the church wanted to discredit these Cathars' beliefs by spreading the stories that the, these heretics actually worshipped uh, the devil and evil deities in person. So they spread some propaganda about the Cathars kissing the anus of Satan in a ceremonial show of loyalty to him. So that's where that image of the evil witches kissing the ass of Satan uh, came from. So as a result of these sustained attacks against these heretics, the public's understanding of Satan moved that from just a mischievous spoiler of things, oh, the Satan, you know, oh, Lucifer, just doing naughty things, to actually a deeply sinister force that could cause really awful things to happen. Jump ahead a little bit to 1273, Thomas Aquinas, who the immensely influential philosopher and theologian argues that demons actually exist to lead people into temptation. So in his mind, sex and witchcraft uh, began what will become a long association with each other. Demons are not merely seeking their own pleasure, but want to lead men into temptation. Jump into the 1400s. The crime of witchcraft began to take shape due to those heretics from earlier, the Cathars, with Catharsism. So the church started to torture them. They were heretics. And you start hearing admissions and confessions of, quote unquote, flying on poles and animals to attend assemblies presided over by Satan appearing in the form of a goat or another animal. Some defendants told investigators that they repeatedly kissed Satan's anus on, as a display of their loyalty. Then 1484 comes the Malus Maleficarum. We already heard really the, the origins, all of that, the hammer of witches also a decent Cradle of Filth album. So that book in the end put rest, put to rest the old idea that witches were powerless in the face of God to a new belief that, you know, Christians now had to, they had this obligation to hunt down and kill them because they were evil and in league with Satan. This book really put that, you know, set that whole belief into stone and legitimized, legitimized everything that the church had to do to, you know, defend the, the society against the, the crime of witchcraft. 
Um, and it goes on and on. We know this tragic history of the European witch hunts. There was persecutions of so, so many women over really ridiculous things, which I think was Christianity. Thank you for that. The means of torture and identifying a witch were barbaric, and as Kelly's described and as I described, and it did not allow for women to really come, come from this unscathed. Uh, whether they were executed or whether they escaping it, this left a mark on women's psyche and has reverberated, on, has reverberated through the decades on how women feel and, on, and throughout generations. What the witch hunts created was a system of terror for women and who were now forced into a new constructed model of femininity that the church patriarchy deemed acceptable. And these four elements have been identified as women were now sexless, they were obedient and submissive, we will see this for many, we'll see this continue on throughout centuries. If anyone is uh, um, familiar with Victorian or Edwardian femininity, the woman as being the, seen as the angel of the household, you know, untouchable, they're sexless. Uh, women's bodies, their menstrual blood, were now receptacles of shame. Uh, they were se seen as disgusting, you know, and we'll see for many, well, and of course we'll see for generations how that imp impacted women especially young women growing into womanhood and not understanding what's happening to their bodies and that whole sense of shame that we that women even um, older women now still sense they have a feel they won't even discuss openly or talk about women were to be subordinate to men and that it was also a woman's job to be reproducers of life that that is not that that is that is what you're here for your purpose your purpose is to have sex and produce a baby and that was it that is all which is really interesting because just recently I someone I saw someone having an actual back and forth with someone around, all around the idea of abortion around abortion and it was really upsetting to see someone you know especially feminine someone really addressing the idea that when once a woman gets pregnant that is it is no longer her body and that is that her body is now there to produce that life and that is what matters and so that abortion was wrong because it was destroying another life and it didn't matter but about that woman's body because it wasn't her life anymore it wasn't her body it's now her body is just essentially there just to produce this fetus and thanks a lot you know to these witch hunts and to the and to the patriarchy for creating these ideas and these perceptions so that now we're still fighting with this toxicity and these fucking ideas that our body is not our own and that we are supposed to be sexless and that we can't dress any way or shape or form or because or be seen as sexual beings because we're going to weaken people fuck that <laughs> fuck that <laughs> yeah fuck that idea that we're just vessels for human yeah. life gross exactly so why were, you know, these women persecuted? Besides the obvious, you know, the the idea of being an evil witch and all of that. Um, they were persecuted in the end because they were outsiders. And like we said time and time again, that they were evil and in a league with Satan. But overall, we were outsiders. Women were the other and men were, you know, afraid of these outsider women and perhaps as agents of castration. Why do they fear that we're going to cut their penises off? Sometimes we want to. Because <laughs> they, are, they are problematic things. <laughs> so I read this really amazing article and it was called Labeling and Oppression, Witchcraft in Medieval Europe. So I'm going to bring about some points here. Essentially, the, the idea behind this article is that the church created the witch was really interesting to me because again I haven't really looked a lot into any of this so it was really great so 
throughout the church and like all of their, you know, why they wanted to, why they were accusing women and punishing, you know, for crimes against witchcraft. So there are three main uh, indictments against witches. They did not worship the Christian God. Oh no. They used magical powers to help or harm people and they threatened or harmed men sexually. So witches represented threats to like the foundation, the fortification of the church. Um, Jess talked about, you know, medicine and they threatened, you know, that is a, like a legitimate form of a, of a, a profession. And then mainly for when, uh, men, sorry, women were not doctors or anything like that for quite a number of years. And the perpetuation of the patriarchal authority. So in this article, it was submitted that the witch image was created by the Christian church. So witches were labeled as deviants and rule makers, and the church were obviously the policers of social norms, social law, and they were the authority in that deeply, deeply religious Christian time of, uh, you know, midi the Middle Ages. Many of the uh, witches were uh, women. We talked again about this, and they actually, some of them were... They follow the ancient pagan religions. They worship nature through gods and not the one true quote unquote Christian God. Some pagan rituals were very hedonistic, you know, characterized by feasting and dancing and uh, having a good time. <laughs> and some of them included sexual acts, which, you know, no, that's frowned upon. You can't be doing those things. Yeah, so they saw witches and pagans and all of them as, as deviants and they had to impose a force to wipe them out and their followers. Which, you know, and broadening the definition of the witch and the scope of the oppression of said witches within the context of like institutionalized abominations. And that came in the Inquisition. I won't go super into the Inquisition. But in doing so, you know, Christianity, because they wanted to really be super powerful and take over everything, drove paganism and a nature peaceful worshiping overall religion underground and then put that incredible fear of the devil in the hearts and minds of all of the people um so yeah let's kill witches essentially what all of that means let's just kill them because that's how you deal with you know heretics and people not of the norm yeah so at some point like christians and pagans actually they coexisted they weren't peaceful it wasn't always peaceful but um with the church, uh, the Christian church wanting to like rise in power and everything, we definitely had to punish those who had other beliefs. So you've had people burned at the stake, stoning, hanging, strangulation, men, women, children, especially, you know, pagans and those like earlier times and then into, you know, witches. In that timeline that I went through earlier, so, you know, witches were not a, an issue at one point and then they switched that completely to adopt a new strategy that witchcraft was indeed the devil's work and it had to be dreaded by people and obviously con conquered righteously by the church and many of these people were peasants you know the poor people like we talked about earlier so by the height of like the inquisition and killing all of these people in the 14th to 15th century um the church concentrated more on convicting witches for just being witches but they had already built up that entire body of mythology right and this is exactly what witches did and they had no fucking idea as to what was happening but they created this whole thing and everyone believed it they firmly believed it and at the center of this fantasy was the witches sabbath so witches flew to the sabbath at midnight or the witching hour on broomsticks accompanied by their familiars 
Um, and at this, uh, you know, this ritual, this event, they sacrificed dead babies, which they had dug up from graves or stolen from women in childbirth when they acted as midwives. Let's bring that back to the whole midwifery being when we helped people and now it's evil, awful work. So no wonder why when they're telling people this is what witches do, people became afraid of them and were totally on board with, you know, killing a lot of innocent people because those things did not happen. So with the immense power of the church at the time, and we know that the time was so, so deeply religious, like no wonder the persecution of these people and witches went on for as long as it did and with such damn tragic ferocity. It's awful. It's really just plain goddamn awful. With all that context and talking about the historical images of the evil witch and why it led to persecution and why it led to all these, all these horrible deaths and acts of accusation and execution against thousands of innocent women, I wanted to talk about The Autopsy of Jane Doe because I think it's such an interesting film because it shows this dichotomy of an evil witch, but is she really an evil witch? And what I think is interesting is as you're watching this film, and as the uh, father and son are cutting into her corpse and they're looking into her body and you know her body is revealing all these secrets about how you know they're trying to find out how she died and they're finding all these incredible things of like oh she was tortured she was like her arms and legs like your her ankles and wrists were snapped her, her tongue was caught uh, cut her her um her vaginal organ has been completely like masticated like it, they just said it was all looked like it had been ripped up with a knife or something like that you know her lungs look like she's been in, on fire and then they start pulling out these elements in her they find like the um, uh, they find the jimson weed which is used to paralyze someone they discover the you know that her tooth was ripped out and that around it what had been tied was this uh, cloth that shows like this ritualistic symbol and the father ends up uh, finding out that oh since uh, the peat under her nails would have came from New England, this uh, this jimson weed also come from that area that she was clearly, you know, and that her because her waist was so small, she was clearly from the 17th century. So she was, you know, one when the witches burned in the Salem witch trials. He talks about how all those women were innocent at the time, and they decipher that what happened to her was really a ritual that turned her into a witch, really an innocent woman who was ritualistically murdered and turned into a witch. Um, so the torture of that alone is semblance of the witch hunts. What I find really interesting about the film, and Kelly's already integrate, already talked about it, the creepiness of the music. And really when you start thinking about it, and you're watching this film a second time, is as the, this music is appearing, you listen to the elements of the radio messages too, like the, the radio announcer is, she's warning them to stop every time that they cut into her you know, how it's and how these messages appear, like she's speaking to him. Also what we find interesting is that we see that as Jane is, Jane Doe, as Jane is killing, is in a way killing, she's taking back her life and taking back her power, a power that would have been taken away from her when she was innocently, when she was brutally killed uh, for her innocence because in some way she must have practiced in some form of witchcraft, whether she's probably involved in some like herbal medicine or probably, you know, spoke to someone the wrong way and she was accused of being a witch. And so what we see in this film, we see that what mankind made her is what now she is and now she's taking back her life in you know becoming a, the image of the witch yeah that's amazing and make it kind of come full circle and lead into 
you know, essentially Jane Doe had to create her own identity. And she's a corpse, right? And she had to do something to help kind of get her voice out there and do things as a... Though she's not dead, but she seems dead. So I wanted to look into uh, what that meant to be... You know, her as a corpse, because obviously that's important. And there's a quote in the movie that... There's two of them. And um, it's I think they're both said by Brian Cox, the father. And he says... This is not just a body. And also he says, everybody has a secret. It's so amazing. I love when he says that because we find out, yes, these bodies do, right? But what does it mean to be a corpse, really? I read this kind of mind-blowing, amazing article called Reconsidering the Dead in Andre Serrano's The Morgue, Identity, Agency, Subjectivity by Andrea Fitzpatrick. So it was with re in regards to a series of morgue photography, but there's a lot of it that can relate definitely to, to Jane Doe. So Elizabeth Bronfen, who wrote Over Her Dead Body, Death, Femininity, and the Aesthetic, which was something I really wanted to read but did not have time for. It seems amazing. Uh, but it kind of sums it up in this article. So she says that female bodies are at risk of representational violence in art and criticism. And, you know, bodies being like our corpses, our uh, overall bodies show a total passivity and massive indifference. You know, there is this imbalance between, imbalance of, imbalance of power between the living and the dead. Bronfen also says that, you know, there's a historical association of femininity of moral decay. The association of femininity of moral decay traces back to Eve. So the skin of Jane Doe exists as a death mask, and then a sinister meaning arises because of the decaying molted skin creates an emblem of pathological decay, a, mis a misogynistic trope of femininity's underlying link to death. And we know witches and women have long been associated or a link to, you know, inherent weaknesses and evilness. So the idea of agency, this, the ability to claim or name identity from one's own perspective and the power to make yourself visible or make themselves given in a social matrix and then the ability to assert oneself. This can lead to a vulnerability, but with the dead, the living have all of the agency and the dead have all of the vulnerability. Corpses have no agency. Jane Doe has no agency. As we end up learning is that she had none when she was living either, really. So in death, she can finally reclaim, reclaim her agency, which Jess said, and then she could seek revenge, which sadly no other witches can, or, you know, women accused of being witches. So Jane Doe, the identity of her is unknown, right? We, she's never claimed by family or given a proper name. And to quote the article, even in death, subjects continue to be vulnerable to representations and to the names that one does or does not call them. Naming is important because it gives existence to a subject. And the only, besides Jane Doe, the only other name given to her is witch. Jane Doe is obviously victimized. There are many goddamn awful, terrible wounds afflicted upon her body. And as a corpse, though there's, you know, that she lacks representation by family or friends, she becomes subject to being an outsider because she has no name, um, she has no agency, so she's an outsider rather than having any kind of affiliation with society. There's no one to advocate on her behalf. She can't speak for herself. 
And, you know, she's vulnerable to post-death kind of like activities and claims and opinions. And she's reduced to pathology over subjectivity. Jane Doe was an actual person at one point. She's not just a corpse, like the movie quote said. You know, every body has a secret and she's not just a body. She was a person. Uh, she can't give her own point of view. Her agency's removed, her like sense of embodiment. She can't express herself. And therefore she's completely dispenseless and other. So the concept of the other or othering is the deductive action of labeling a person as someone who belongs to a subordinate social category defined as the other. The practice of othering is the exclusion of persons who do not fit the norm of the social group, which is a version of the self, which are witches, right? They've been boiled down to being the other. Jane Doe turns into the other. She has no agency. She has to kind of reclaim, like Jess said, her own kind of identity and do what she can from the space that she has to be in now, which is like this dead but not dead everlasting life that has to keep giving out revenge every single time. Like I feel like she'll just continue on because she cannot be destroyed. So thank you for society. You know, thanks to society for creating that wonderful force of nature. When I look at watching this film and I think outright you'll watch it and you'll think she's a bad witch. She's evil. She's killing these innocent people who are just trying to figure out why she's dead. But then as you're watching it and you, you start to and you learn more about the past of witches and the torture that women underwent and stuff like that, you maybe you think you you look at it as like, hmm, there's a lack of understanding of her past and play in what was done to her. You know, we think of we look, for example, at the counts of innocent women who were accused and tortured as witches. All those women had a story. All those women's stories were not heard. They did not have a say. And this would have exactly happened to Jane as well. If she was seen as a, she was an innocent woman and seen as a witch, she would not have been able to speak up for herself because other people would have been accusing her. No one would have listened to her or any of her sense of her norms. So she is then thus deemed witch, thus deemed evil, thus deemed bad. We must kill her. We must make, we must make her suffer. Uh, for her evil ways and so when we look at this element of you know jane taking back her identity and taking back her power and in, in thus in the form of a corpse then we think well is she an evil witch are all witches evil like when they just say fine if you want to see me this way then i will just own up to this identity that you've given me and i will use that power to regain my own sense of my own sense of self and my own identity one of the things i think is interesting is the use of the name jane doe so we look at, we know that typically corpses that cannot be identified will be known as either a John Smith or a Jane Doe. And I find that this, this is definitely a generic term, but at the same time too, I was like, is this kind of symbolism in this movie? That in a way that she is representative of every woman who was accused of witchcraft and tortured and killed in the end. And this is why. Yes. <laughs> oh my God, I love what you're saying right now. <laughs> Sorry. Yes. And thank you for tying that into that, one, that wonderful article that I yeah. read. No, Sorry. for sure. Like I, when I, I had watched that movie again, and and I just kept thinking about it. I'm like, she's named Jane Doe. She's named a Jane Doe, and Jane Doe are typically are the people who can, we cannot identify. So when we cannot identify them, we, we we place them as other. But also at the same time too, she represents every single woman who has been accused as as a witch. And so, really, is that bad? No, I don't think so. I don't think so at all. I think you know, at the end of the day, she was doing what she had to do to survive. She was given, you know, if she was tortured in this ritual that gone wrong and made her a witch, kind of quotation marks that people can't see, gave her the ability to find, to reenact the 
what was done to her to, to have others feel what it's like to have to go through that, to not be able to speak for yourself and to be tortured and killed because of other people's beliefs about who you are. Yes, I don't even have too much to follow that up on, really. We know that, like, initially, like, all these crazy supernatural events and, like, maybe magical things start happening. Um, corpses start walking around trying to kill our um, father and son uh, team. And, of course, that's what, you know, the aspects of the evil witches of the past were uh, accused of. Um, and then once she's named as a witch, uh, you know, her, re her revenge continues or the magical supernatural events uh, continue, even on seemingly innocent people or their men, right? You know, and who perhaps are just another example of the capitalist patriarchal society that disadvantages women. You know, maybe they were fine dudes, you know what I mean? But like Jess said, she was in her own way and you know, trying to get them to stop, right? And, uh, you know, so at first she's seen kind of as a villain, but is she really, just like Jess said, you know, she's just became what society claimed that she was. Um, and, you know, this is her story of death and resistance, right? She just kind of had to become what, what she needed to do. And you're right, just trying to survive in this weird state that she's in. And I think watching this movie without knowing that there was a witch element would have been hugely impactful on people that watched it. It still was impactful to me. I just felt so damn sad about it, right? I was like super spooked. And then it was just really, really sad. Um, but even, even having it spoiled for me, I think that was a really upsetting realization. It was just, it's so awful. You know, as stated earlier in, in the podcast that this was, you know, the element and, and image of the witch was not something I ever really looked into or took time to fully understand. And because there has been, a, you know, this resurgence in, in the witch image and witchcraft and witchy related things, whether it be fashion and books and different things, uh, especially with three main movies that came out recently. So The Love Witch, The Witch, and this movie, Autopsy of Jane Doe. You know, there's obviously something going on here that uh, is worth investigating. So this research has been incredibly fascinating to me to look into. It's devastating, and I can understand why now, like what that means, like what witch feminism means, and why women are, are drawn to that image, because I never was drawn to that. I watched some witch-related stuff, like practical magic, and I obviously, like, I loved the craft, and I loved the witch, but I was more drawn to physical strength, like the Ripley's and the Buffy's, over, like, a mystical power. Uh, so this was really new and really enlightening to me. So I didn't get it, and I get it now. So I read Witches, Sluts, Feminists, Conjuring the Sex Positive by Kristen J. Soli, and there was an a quote in it. So I wrote the review, it's on the website, and I put this quote in it because it was really quite, a, it's quite powerful. And it wrote, and it says, in the face of oppression, the witch reminds us what we can and have overcome and illuminates the path to power beyond patriarchy. As women, we have experienced such hate and oppression and pain and suffering. You know, we have endured, but we move on. We move on greater and stronger than before, and I really think that the image of the witch might be fucking exactly what we need right now to help us 
uh, during these modern times. I've been on this path for a while now and I was really excited to do a whole month on witches. Uh, October is the season of the witch as we saw throughout all, social, all social media. Um, but for me, the identity of the witch in witchcraft has always played a large part in my life since I was a child. And in recent years, I've come to identify myself as a witch. And if you go to our website, you can read about my latest, read my latest blog post that discusses more about this journey. And I am one of those women, I am one of those many women who finds empowerment in the image of, in the witch. Um, because at the end of the day, all those women who were executed as witches were all unconventional women. Women who stood out in a unique way, women who challenged societal norms, and women who learned to say no. It is a tragedy that because of this, that they were murdered by a patriarchy to silence them and that it still carries on today, except not with the physical violence, but with the constant mental and emotional violence that women are constantly feeling. So in every movie that I watch, in every book that I read, that always has an element of witches to it or witchcraft in it, I find fascinating. And I'm always learning about a new way in which witches are viewed by the dichotomy that will always remain, is she a good witch or is she a bad witch? So that ends our episode on witches and horror and the exploration of the witch as a symbol of female empowerment. We want to thank Dance With The Dead for our intro and outro music, Robies. Blair for his assistance in editing our episodes and all of you listeners who have been engaging and supporting us. We want to remind you to follow us on our website, www.spinstersofhorror.com, Facebook at uh, Spinsters of Horror, on our Twitter account at Horror Spinsters, our Instagram at Spinsters of Horror, our email is horrorspinsters at gmail.com. As well, please, please, please rate and review us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and any podcasting app you listen to us on. Tune in next month when we talk about the ever-controversial subgenre, Rape Revenge. Is it feminist or filth? The movies for discussion will be the classic I Spit on Your Grave and the incredible inspiration for our podcast name and the newly released MFA. Until then, remember, the future of fear is female.